0: Good morning. Again, as I've said a few times before, I don't know if you've heard me say it before, but I'm so thankful to be here with you this morning. I want you to know that I feel your love for me and I'm thankful that you love me in spite of me. I promise, as your friend and as your pastor, to do everything I can to prove how grateful I am uh, for your kindness and your love for me and my family. Uh, I'm so overwhelmed with joy constantly, Um, even during difficult times. I'm overwhelmed with joy uh, thinking about this church, thinking about you as individuals, but you as one body gives me so much hope for our future as a church, but so much hope for our friendship and our love for each other and the goodness and kindness we're going to share with each other today. We're going to move on in Romans 11. As Blake just read, we're going to be in Romans eleven, twenty-two through 27. And we're going to answer again, uh, and I think the way Paul does, the question, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? Remember last week, um, we answered that question. Of course, the answer, the easy answer is definitively, no, God has not rejected his people. But remember the points that I think Paul brought out from the last part of Romans 11. And that was that not only has God not rejected his people, but he still has one body, one tree with various branches. Remember, Christianity is not a um, A.D. religion. It's an ancient religion. Christianity did not just start with Jesus. Christianity was The culmination of God's plan at the fullness of time together in the world for himself. And so really, um, and I said this and it's a bold statement, but I'll say it again. Christianity is then really, it is a sect of Judaism in a sense. Christianity is the fulfillment of all that Jewish people, all that God's chosen people were waiting for. We're hoping for. We are one tree with various branches. Each of these branches dependent on the root. Last week we learned from Paul. We'll learn it again. We learned it in all the letters. and all the gospels. and In all the Bible. That we are not dependent on ourselves. That we should not get proud lest we stumble. Lest we fall. That we are dependent on the root. We're dependent on the source of godliness. The source of hope. And that should cause us to do a few things. Understanding that we're completely dependent on the Lord, that should cause us to do a few things. It should cause us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Our salvation should be a work in the sense that we get up every day and put effort into becoming more like Jesus. It should not be a work in the sense that we can work our way to salvation. We know that it's by grace we're saved through faith. But it should be a work in the sense that we wake up every morning ready to put in the work in order to become more like Jesus because of the work that he has done in our lives. It should cause us not to be proud, not to be proud, not to assume that that we are more special than the Jewish people, that God has forgotten his covenant nation, or that we're more special than the unrepentant. We should not be proud. We should seek after the lost. We should humble ourselves before the Lord. Another thing that we should not do is we should not assume God's favor. We should not assume God's favor. Just because we're a part of a church, just because we get the warm and fuzzies, just because we've cried or walked the aisle or prayed at the steps of the altar, we should not assume God's favor. When we, know, we know that we have God's favor when we submit to Him, when we trust Him, when we repent of our sins, when we abandon our sins, when we pursue Him. This does not mean perfection. This does not mean everything's going to go super, you know, hunky-dory your whole life. It means that we will, in general, pursue our Lord. And the way we know that we can have confidence in our salvation is when there is an upward trajectory, a consistent upward trajectory of pursuing the Lord in righteousness. It leads to another facet of our question today. Has God rejected his people? And I again want to answer no, and I want to give you this thought that we'll build our entire sermon on today. Through Israel's unbelief, God is showing both justice and grace. Has God rejected his people? No. Through Israel's unbelief, God is showing both justice and grace. It is clear to me, friends, as it is clear, as clear as anything that we have recently studied that God has not rejected His covenant nation. He has not rejected His people. And I think we have done overall a good job of understanding what Paul is trying to say to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans 11. And I hope that today, and over the last few weeks, we have taken note of God's treatment toward His covenant people. Now, we don't know exactly how it will all... um, sort of pan out. We don't know exactly how the specifics of God's plan will work. But something that we do know for sure is that God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. I believe that as sure as we are sitting here today, that God has a plan for the nation of Israel. Um, And as long as history has existed, um, Israel and even before history, if we understand the providence and the sovereignty of God, Israel has been a part of that intricate plan. Israel is is as just important to general history as any other nation, probably the most important nation in all history. And if you think about it, now you're going to have to think hard, because I've had more time to think about this, and you may have to think about this after I say this, but really, Israel is... Proof of Christianity. Think about that, right? Israel, as it exists, even today, is proof of Christianity. Has there been another nation to exist and continually exist and and furthermore exist like Israel? Has there been any nation like that? Think about it. One of the biggest proofs of the Bible and our faith is Israel in general. It's a thousand, thousands of years old is the nation. Countless, listen, countless people and countless nations have done their best to exterminate the people of God. And yet, still here. Still exists. God's Chosen nation still exists. Think about the general way people over time have felt towards Jewish people, towards Israel. I would say this, that the only class or the only sect of people, I think there's two, that are um, not untouchable as far as jokes, as far as ridicule, is Christians and Jews. Jews. Fair game for Christians and Jews. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Israel has uh, every attempt to destroy God's chosen nation has been made. And yet, as a remnant, Israel still stands. And if we understand the Bible correctly, to say that Christianity is the fulfillment of all that God wanted to do to His people, and that we are a part of that faithful remnant, then the fact that Israel still stands is just one of many large proofs that God is who He says He is. But the fact that a a visible remnant of Israel stands uh, also directs my mind to another few things, and that is that God is good and rich in grace. Because Israel has not only not only has from the outside in people tried to destroy Israel from the nation as a nation, but Israel as a nation itself has tried to destroy itself from the inside out, constantly um, being poured out upon them the goodness of God and being rich in blessings, and then becoming um, prosperous and then becoming complacent. To where God brings His judgment. Israel has done its best to destroy itself. Others have done their best to destroy Israel. And yet they stand. Which is not only in our own lives we know the testimony of God's grace. But this too is proof of the testimony of God's matchless grace. But not only is it a proof of the testimony of God's matchless grace, proof of his truth in the gospel in general and his plan for the world in general. But it's also proof that I I believe that there is still a plan in God's overarching plan for the nation of Israel. And in our text today, Paul even expresses um, this, I think, for us. And I think he expresses a progression that will happen that will lead to a large-scale repentance of God's chosen nation. I think that's going to happen. I think that's a future event that will happen. And I will say, we might not have enough, I might not have enough time today to explain it all. But the good thing is, I might not have enough time to confuse you either. So that might be good. And if you want to talk about this further and deeper, uh, we can do this in a, in a private way or in a different way. Or you can look for your answers through your MC leaders. Good luck, guys out there who are leading the MCs. But I think in our text today, Paul is expressing a progression that will lead to a large-scale Jewish repentance. In verse 23 we find that not only that a Jewish conversion is possible. Verse 23 says, if they do not continue in their unbelief, a Jewish conversion is possible. If they do not continue in their unbelief, what we find is that God will graft them in just like he grafted the wild olive branch. Not only that leads to this, not only is a Jewish conversion possible, but verse 24 says that if Jewish conversion is probable, it's probable. He says, if you, the unnatural branches, the wild olive branch was cut off from your wild olive tree and you were grafted in to what is natural. Just imagine how what lengths and what heights and what depths the Lord is willing to go to to take what is natural, to take that dead branch off the ground, to breathe life into it and to graft it back in to the olive tree, to that one tree of faith. So not only is this Jewish repentance possible, but it's probable and honestly The end of the progression there is found in verse 26. I think it is inevitable. Not only is it possible and probable, it is inevitable. Verse 26 says, and in that way, all Israel will be saved. Now, that's probably the most confusing part of our text today. And I hope to do a good job explaining that. What we know simply, friends, and this... Uh, if, 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 I, if I muck this up, if I make it dirty and, and cloudy to where you can't see it, take this thought, if you're taking notes, and write this down and just go back to this as your true point of understanding. Okay, What we know is, is that God has kept a remnant of His chosen nation as Christ followers through faith and by grace. If I mess it all up, remember, That Christ has kept a remnant of his chosen nation as followers of Christ through faith and by grace. If I mess it all up, go back to this and remember this God has not forgotten his promise with his chosen people, he has not forgotten his promise. And if by the end of this, you're completely confused, go back to this. There will be a time of large-scale repentance amongst the chosen nation of God. So if you're a Cliff Notes type person, you can write those down and leave or just check out. That's all you need. But if you want to understand a little bit more, we'll go into that a little bit more. God has kept a chosen nation, right? A remnant of that chosen nation who follow Christ... By grace through faith, God has not forgotten His promise to the nation as a whole. And at a a time, there will be a time where there will be a large scale repentance among the chosen nation of God. God has not forgotten His people. We're going to find out that that has, or we're going to remember and be reminded that it has large scale ramifications, not just for His chosen nation, but for us also. Remember the story of Hosea? I talked about it, I think, in Romans 9. It was so long ago, I don't really remember. Maybe Romans 10. It was a long time ago. Maybe neither of those. But we talked about the story of Hosea. Do you remember how Hosea had children and he named his children really weird and mean names? Hosea named one of his uh, children Jezreel, which means scattered. Scattered. He named... Listen... It's it's hard enough being the middle child, but he named his middle child Lo Ruhema, which means not loved. Thank you. Thank you for that. And if it weren't enough, and if the last child don't ha- doesn't have enough problems, he named his last child Lo Am I, which means not my people. What a father. They're all going to be on Jerry Springer's show one day. But the Lord had other plans for these people who were scattered, who were not loved, who were not My people. And as a as a testimony to the plan that God had for the fullness of time, He changed the name of those children. He didn't change it completely. He just made a little variation to their name and He changed their name to... And this is wonderful, folks. He changed their name to Planted, Loved, and My People. Before they were tossed out, just like trash. They were not loved and they were not my people. But in God's rich grace and mercy and in his plan, he will once again plant his people. They will be his beloved. And they will be his people. Zechariah chapters 12 through 14 is... Uh, All of chapter 12 through 14 is prophecy of the final days. And there are seven sections in that chapter in Zechariah 12 through 14. We went through this several years back, and maybe in this next few seconds I'll do a better job of explaining it than I did back then. But those sections of prophecy in 12 through 14 is that God will deliver Israel from the nations, they will look. They will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn. A fountain will be opened to David and Israel will be cleansed. The people will call on God and He will say, they are my people, like the the middle child of, of Hosea almost forgot his name. They are my people and the Lord will appear and he will bring deliverance and he will bring prosperity. And the Jews and the Gentiles will go and worship God together and the Lord will bring holiness to his people. There is a plan for Israel. There is a plan for the Gentiles and there is a plan that culminates in us all being together in a faith family. I want to spend the last part of our time doing what I think Paul has asked us to do in Romans 11. Romans 11.22 starts out with these words. (coughs) Excuse me. Note then. Paul says note then. What he's saying here is take note. Pay special attention to. Judge with scrutiny what I'm about to explain to you. Paul says, take note to the kindness and severity of God. And I think that it leads us to examine this thought when thinking about the kindness and severity of God. We should take note of Israel's history. We should take note of Israel's history. History. Look at verse twenty-two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For the God, for God has the power to graft them in again. That's important to remember. That's a very small part. I'm not going to mention that again. But for God has the power to graft them in again. What seems impossible with man. What seems improbable. What seems unlikely. Is possible, probable, and likely, and inevitable with God. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree this is friends you need to see this is kindness and severity this is not either or god cannot separate because he is true to his character he is true to his nature he does not separate kindness and severity it's not kindness or severity but he is both loving and merciful and he's gracious and he is just he is vengeful and he is willing and able to punish it is kindness and severity not kindness or severity god to many churches to many people to a vast majority of people is love 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 and he is rarely severe And sometimes I feel like I lean on the side where God is severe and I forget that he is full of kindness, full of grace, full of mercy to me and to you and the vilest of sinners if he's willing to repent and believe the gospel. But it is kindness and severity, never, never either or. And this is why you've heard me say a thousand times and I hope that you understand it and I'll say it again that God is just as just in saving a sinner as He is passing over the sinner and condemning, thereby condemning the sinner in his own sin. He is just as righteous in doing so. His kindness is evident in His saving grace and His mercy. This is the goodness of the heart of God to those who are helpless and in great need. His kindness is displayed all through Romans 1 through 8 in his electing power, his justifying power, his sanctifying work, and his glorifying work. He is kind. To call out some to believe the gospel. To justify them through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. To sanctify them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then to one day glorify us that we will be be with God and live with Him forever. As He has intended it from the beginning. He is immensely kind. But He is also just. So He is also severe. His severity is found in His just nature. This is the image that we had a few weeks ago of the branch being roughly broken off and thrown away. And what they do with those power branches after they don't produce fruit, they break them off, they throw them away, and they burn them up. This is the severity of the Lord. This is a branch being cut off roughly, abruptly, and decisively. His severity is on those who have fallen. Now note, these are both fallen Jews and Gentiles. But what I also want you to note is that these are not people who were saved who is lo- who have lost their salvation. This is not losing your salvation. What this is Is For the Jews, it is you were a part of the chosen nation of God. You were given all of the riches of God to see and to experience and to participate in. And you chose otherwise. You have fallen away from that kindness that He has given to you as a nation. And for the Gentiles, it's like the seed that was cast upon the rock that, was, that sprouted up really quickly but it didn't have deep roots and so when the sun came it scorched it and it killed it it's those people who, who show and demonstrate uh, the kindness of God they're quick to jump out of the gates of salvation and say I'm a Christian and I'm a part of a church and I'm, um, I'm going to go on mission trips and I'm going to share the gospel and I'm going to do this and that I'm sorrowful for my sin but when the trials come when the difficulty come they shrink back and they fall away And they remove themselves from the faith. These are not people who are saved who have lost their faith. These are people who, with the best of heart, as they can do, they want the righteousness of God, but they practice self righteousness instead. They fall away because self righteousness is not deeply rooted in the work of Jesus, it's deeply rooted in the work of man. This is not people who have lost their salvation. These are people who have experienced God in some way, have seen his goodness, have seen his kindness, and have walked away. It reminds me when I'm thinking about this, it reminds me of John 2. John two, Jesus performs the wedding. He performs a miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. He performs. He he turns the water into wine. And at the end of John two, John two says, uh, uh, "The testimony of John says many believed in him that day, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew the heart of man. This is the kindness that was revealed to them. It's revealed through the miracles. It's revealed through the work of the church. It's revealed through the kindness of other believers. But it never takes deep root." This is not someone who has lost their salvation. This is someone who has seen how good God can be, but they practice self-righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness of God and they fall away. We should learn from Israel's history. What are some things I think we can learn? I think we can learn that faithlessness always, always leads to severity from God faithlessness always leads to severity from God this can be temporary or this can be eternal when we are faithless when we don't practice righteousness when we don't seek after Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit it will always lead to the discipline to the rebuke and to the severity of God when we are believers, when we are walking in faith on a regular basis, that is temporal. The point of the severity of God for a believer is to spank our bottoms and get us back in line in faith and walking in righteousness. The, the, the severity of God for the unbeliever is to say, if you don't repent, you too will be broken off and will perish. Eternal Condemnation. Trusting in Jesus leads to life. Faithlessness leads to severity. We are reminded of this over and over again by Israel's pattern of unbelief. There is community with God. There is unity. There is belief. And then God pours out his blessings as he does because he is a rich in blessings. God, he pours out his blessings and then prosperity comes along and then complacency comes along and then faithlessness comes along. And then God's anger comes along and then judgment comes along and then separation comes along and then God's people are left without a home. And with Israel as a nation, this kept happening over and over and over and over again. And we would be unwise to think with the Christian nation that that doesn't happen over and over and over again. Although I'm sure there is some nuance to that. Faithlessness always brings about God's severity. God's favor... Prosperity and peace are not meant for us to just enjoy. They're meant for us to redistribute so that other people might experience the favor and the joy and the grace and the peace of knowing God. When we enjoy the gift more than the giver, it leads to complacency, it leads to rebellion. And that it always leads to God's severity. For Christians, especially in this generation, we are weak-willed people. So when we face the severity of God, we don't say, what is God teaching me? We say, why would God do this to me? We don't say, what can I learn from this? We would say, how could a loving God do blank? When we face the severity of God, friends, it's not always because we have sinned. But I'm telling you, if you face the severity of God, the first place I would look is, is there any corner of my life? Is there any corner of my life that is unpleasing to the Lord? Now, it's not always when we face trials, when we face tribulations, it's not always that we've sinned. Sometimes we face trials and tribulations because God is trying to toughen us up He's trying to make us stronger because He wants to use us in a greater and mighty way. But a lot of times, and I would at least make it a thought, at least in the back of my head, that if I'm facing the severity of God, that is there anything in my life that has caused me to get to this point? Faithlessness always leads to the severity of God. Faithfulness is a sure proof of salvation. Paul says, if you continue, if you continue, he doesn't say, if you start off following the Lord, if you start off being a fruitful branch, he says, if you continue, Paul is pointing out a progression in salvation, he's pointing out going from an infant in salvation to an adult in salvation. And although some people's paths take a little longer to get there, we all will get there if we belong to Christ. We all will reach spiritual maturity and spiritual adulthood if we belong to Christ. Faithfulness is a sure proof of salvation. One of the ways that we know that we belong to Christ, one of the ways that we know that we are in His family, that we are elect that we are a child of God, is if we continue in the faith over time. If our faith and growth is progressing. Remember our definition of preservation of the saints, right? Only those who belong to Christ will make it to the end. But also this, all those who belong to Christ will make it to the end faithfulness is a sure proof of your salvation here's why because you can't be faithful to God in self-righteous ways you can only be faithful to God if the spirit of God lives in you and is changing you and so faithfulness is proof of spirit work in your life another thing that we can learn from history is Israel's history is is that as long as we have breath we can repent and believe the gospel. Jews and Gentiles alike have a long history of following that pattern that I described earlier. And God has been faithful to His promise that even those branches that were broken off can be healed and grafted back in. As long as we are alive, friends, as long as we have breath, we can repent and believe the Gospel. But the Bible also says that now is the acceptable time and today is the day of salvation. We cannot delay any longer. We must repent. We must believe. We must trust in this great Gospel which we have learned which we know about, which we understood, which has been revealed to us. And if you are a believer, it's something that, as Paul says later, that you stand in. He says to the church at Corinth. As we look at God's kindness and severity, we should take note then of God's faithfulness. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hiding has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Friends, generation after generation, and God is still preserving His people with a remnant of Jewish believers, but also with a new branch grafted in. A new Part of this faith family in the Gentiles. But right now we sit in a time. Of partial hardening of God's chosen nation. Meaning that since the time of Jesus. There has been and maybe even a little bit before. There has been a hardening of the Jewish people. A massive rejection of the kindness of God. But Paul denotes that this hardening is partial which means that it is limited. It is limited in time and it is limited in reach. Paul says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, meaning that every Gentile that God has chosen to save is saved, then he is going to start a work amongst the Jews. And I believe then, friends, there will be a great awakening amongst the Jews. To demonstrate this, in Ezekiel 37, we see the story of the valley of the dry bones. And Ezekiel, either in a vision, or in real life, or in spirit, he is taken to this valley. And there are... Thousands upon thousands of dried out bones in the ground. What I believe has happened here is a great battle has occurred. And a a battle that had so much loss that they couldn't do anything with the bodies. And the bodies just lied and they rotted. And the bones, and it was a long time ago and the bones were just dried out in the ground. And the Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy. Prophesy to these bones. And what happens is when when Ezekiel prophesies... the the sinew and the cartilage and the tendons and the central nervous system is redeveloped in this body and this body gets up and starts walking and the Lord says prophesy breath and it's and the Bible says the four winds come and breathe breath into these body these bodies and it gives life to these bones. Ezekiel 37 is meant to show us that even in the deadest of dead that God can revive from himself a people of dead and dry bones and that one day when the fullness of the Gentiles has come that means every elected Gentile that God set out to save he has saved he is going to raise up the bones of the dead nation of God he will bring repentance he will bring change and the faith will be not in just some random Uh, work or some random sacrifice, but it will be in Christ Himself. When Peter preached at Pentecost in Acts 2 to a mostly Jewish audience, he emphasized the electing grace of God and salvation saying this, the promise is for you. This is mostly Jewish audience. Remember that. He says the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's the Gentiles. For all for whom the Lord our God will call. Acts 2.39 Peter wasn't emphasizing a new way of salvation. His message was still in verse 38. His message was still repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God is not only going to save every Gentile that He sets out to save, but every Jewish person who is recorded in the Lamb's book of life will also be saved. There will come a time where the Lord will pick up the dead branches. He will raise to life the dry bones and He will graft back into the tree of God the people of God. His chosen nation. There will be a large contention of gentiles in eternity but friends to the glory of God and as a demonstration of his loving kindness his rich mercy and grace there will be a large contention of Jewish believers in eternity here's what i think happens to the best of my understanding at this moment i think god will save a large portion of the physical nation of Israel. I think God will save a large portion of the physical nation of Israel. I think it will come through faith and repentance in Jesus. And I think it will be one of the last signs of the last days. Paul said, and, I, and really as I'm going back to this, I could be off base because it's just coming to me right this second. It seems to be the story, the message behind leaving the 99 to go after the one also. I might have missed that to this point. I could be wrong. I'll go back and look at it again. Paul says, if you were a wild olive tree and grafted in, you were unnatural. You were unwanted. You were not my people. And I put you in. Just imagine... This is, of course, talking as the Lord. Just imagine the steps, what I'm willing to do to graft my natural branches back to where they belonged. If we learn anything from Israel, it is that God is faithful. He is long suffering. He is kind and he is ready and willing to save if you would turn from your sins, if you would turn away from that old mindset that would lead you to trusting in Jesus, that would lead to a new life in Christ. He is ready to save. His warning in Acts 240 after those two beautiful verses I mentioned before, his warning in Acts 240 to these To this audience, it's a sermon, the last part of his sermon, he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Friends, the promise is for every Jew who believes. The promise is for every Gentile who believes. We must turn from our sin. We must trust Christ and believe that beautiful gospel that he has worked out since before the foundations were set. There's one last thought I want to leave you with today. We should take note, and I've already kind of spoiled it because I've already given you this multiple times now, but we should take note of God's way to salvation. Not only we should take note of Israel's history, we should not only take note of God's faithfulness to save, He's long-suffering, He's willing to hold out, He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We should take note of God's way of salvation. Look at um, Romans 11, 26, 27. This is Paul quoting Isaiah 59, 20. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Like I said, he's quoting Isaiah 59, 20. And it's explaining how the Jewish... People will be saved. If you look at verse 26, it can really be stated in two ways. It can be stated, and in this way, like we see it in the English Standard Version, but also another adequate way to state it is, and in the same way. In the same way. Either gives the exact meaning Paul wants. What Paul wants to say is, there is only one way of salvation for the Jew and the Greek, it is this way. It is being grafted into the family of God. And for the Jewish nation who has been unsaved and unrepentant and obviously broken off in the same way that the Gentiles were grafted in, the Jewish people must be grafted back in. But also, something that is special, and I've said about a thousand times over the time we've known each other, maybe more, in the same way as this. We are all going to be redeemed. If we are redeemed through Christ, we are all going to be redeemed in the same way. All of elect Israel that will be saved will be saved in the same way. All of the elect Gentiles that will be saved will be saved in the same way. And verse 27 describes it. The Deliverer will come. He will banish ungodliness. He will take away their sins. Christ will come. He will consecrate you. He will make you holy for yourself and he will remove your sins to justify or to satisfy the justice of God. This has always been the way of salvation. This has always been the way of salvation. Faith in God. A removal of sin, a consecrated people, a holiness and then and then God through Christ justifying the, the wrath of or satisfying the wrath of God. I don't think Paul is confirming a new way or a parallel way for the Jews. This is important because you may hear some people try to tell you that there's a separate path. That there will be a new temple built. And there will be new animal sacrifices. And God makes a special provision for the Jews to salvation. This is not true. This is not biblical. If any Jewish person will be saved, he will be saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone the Paul excuse me Paul and the Bible would lead us to believe that everyone who is a Christian is saved in the same way the rescuer comes he kills sin and he cleanses us from those sins and the Lord has been had the Lord has had that plan and that method since before the fall of mankind he has instituted it since after the fall of mankind and he will do it until the day he returns What a testimony to the rich grace of God. What a testimony to the long suffering of our Lord. Friends, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's his kindness. But also, don't be confused because he is not slack as some people count slackness. He will bring on wrath to those who refuse His gospel. What a great gift. But the question is, will you ignore this gift today? Have you ever trusted in Jesus in this way? If not, you are ignoring this great gift of grace. Christian, will you ignore this great gift today? Will you continue in your sins? Will you... Continue in your sins and, and falling away? Or will you trust through faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit in all things that God has given us to be more like Him? Will you overlook God's kindness and receive His severity? Because it isn't one or the other, it is both and. If we do not receive His kindness today, We will receive His severity in eternity. Or will you trust Him? Will you repent and believe the gospel? Will you hear the calling of the Holy Spirit on your life? Receive that great gift. Flee from your sin. Be a holy people set apart for the good works of God. What a great God. What a great God who since the beginning and until the end will be showing His loving kindness from generation to generation to generation. Will you pray with me today? Lord, thank You for Your great gift of salvation thank you for your great kindness upon us thank you for loving us in a way that we couldn't write up if we had a million years to write this story thank you for watching over us in a way and caring for us in a way that we cannot care for ourselves Lord, help us today to not harden our hearts, to receive your kindness, to receive your love, and to receive your mercy, to trust you, to follow you, to progress every day to be more like you. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail you, search every corner of our hearts. Search every corner of our hearts. And find anything that is displeasing to you and remove it from our lives. Help us as believers to love you more every day and love others like we love ourselves. We pray and ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, the relentless pursuer. Amen.